faith in the Lord, he and his armor bearer crossed that ravine, climbed a mountain or a cleft of a rock, and attacked the Philistine army. And then we saw the salvation of the Lord and how the Lord worked. That, that great salvation was super exciting. And, that, and we're still here. This is where we're at. Now, I want to remind you once again of just a couple of things, okay? And, and in particular, in this historical narrative, we are, we are in a place where it is about King Saul. King Saul is the chosen king of the people, not of God. And this we are seeing, and we are continuing to look at, and we're seeing some contrast, and and in particular, we're even seeing some contrast between Saul and his son, Jonathan. And we're going to continue to see some of that even this afternoon. It's a lengthy uh, text, but it is... Chuck full of just some wonderful things for us to look at this afternoon. I'd like to direct your attention to it. Once again, verse 23, this is God's word to us. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one. Put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed by the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from uh, Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. 
Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of, the, of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how the sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people of, uh, of people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people Israel, give them Thuming. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. The names of two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We thank You for the means of grace that You have provided for Your people this Lord's Day. And we would ask once again that, uh, that You would give us understanding of Your Word. Allow us to grow in godliness. Give us faith in the work of our King, Christ. We ask for these provisions uh, over your word by your spirit this afternoon. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
So once again, Jonathan and his armor bearer worked that great salvation of God, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. With a bold faith in the Lord, Jonathan took on the entire Philistine horde. And the Lord gave Jonathan the victory. And even though Jonathan's slaughter sealed the win for Israel, there is plenty of battle left. After the Philistines turned on themselves and ran, Israel needs now to do some mopping up. They need to pursue the Philistines. They need to plunder them as they go. The remaining operation then is not just fighting. Rather, it is also plundering as the Philistines retreat. Now, our text makes clear that this all happened. This entire battle scene that we have read and covered a couple weeks ago and even today is a single day. Jonathan likely made his assault on that rocky cliff early in the morning. And so Israel has to chase after them for the remainder of the day. Needless to say, a battle like this, well, it's a tiring job. It's kind of like running a long-distance race in full gear. With a weapon in one hand, and you're fighting, and you're killing as you go with the other. This would be quite the workout. Yes, even for the best fit crossfitter, you can only imagine as they're traveling, having to run and to fight and to mop up. Well, Saul knows and understands the importance of this job and the importance of the win for Israel. The mighty Philistines, they are on the run. They are in full retreat. This is the moment of a lifetime for Israel. Israel needs to make the most of this opportunity. So Saul wants to spur the men on. This, after all, is what kings do. Kings, they motivate their men to fight with courage and with fierceness. And to do this, Saul makes an oath. Or rather, we should say it this way, Saul imposes a curse on his men, which is in place, is to place a demand upon his soldiers upon pain of a curse. And this demand, this demand on the men is a fast. Any person that eats anything before the sun sets will be cursed. Now, Saul does this to give Israel a singular devotion. Nothing is more important than wiping out the enemy of God. And so Saul wants Israel to focus on the importance of the battle. We should acknowledge that. There is no rest. There are no snacks until the job is done. Now, there are a lot of things in life that just do not mix very well. And one of them is prolonged exercise and fasting. Before a marathon, you need calories in your system. 
But Saul's sanction upon the men is like fasting during a full marathon. Sure, maybe his men need focus, but this fast does not seem to be very prudent. In fact, Saul places this duty upon his men with an oath, or once again, like I said, with a curse. You see, an oath invokes the holy name of God. Oaths are solemn. They are irrevocable. And an oath here calls upon God to make sure this duty is done. Is King Saul being a little rash here? I mean, it might work out for him, but it can also come back to bite him. Well, as Israel pursues, the Philistines enter a forest. And in these woods, the bees have gone crazy. Honeycombs are hanging from the trees. Honey, fresh honey is on the ground. Delicious, sweet honey is at their fingertips in abundance. This is like going all day without food while you're working and then coming to a room with free donuts, talking about temptation. It's like cooking fresh cinnamon rolls that that our brother makes, you know, after, after a long Sunday sermon, and yet you can't eat them. Now that is remarkable. Now, what is interesting as you we've read this text is that none of the Israelites take a nibble they fear the oath too much this does show us the seriousness of the oath despite the hunger pains they will not come close to that curse well that brings us to Jonathan And Jonathan, as you call, was way out in front of the rest of the soldiers. And so he wasn't with them when Saul issued this fast. And so in blissful ignorance, Jonathan eats a handful of honey when you have been running hard all day and a little sleepy is like two Red Bulls and a donut. The honey would be a jolt of energy. Pow, your eyes are brightened. You are ready to go again. Brothers and sisters, imagine just being weak, being dizzy from low blood sugar, and all of a sudden you have this beautiful, luscious honeycomb. What a refreshment it would have been. Jonathan's ignorance about the oath, though, well, it's short-lived. A fellow soldier sees Jonathan eating and he rebukes him. Hey man, your dad swore a fast upon us. What are you doing? How dare you violate that curse? But now Jonathan, Jonathan responds and what he says is both receptive and it is very telling for us. For Jonathan does not mince words Instead, he calls his dad out. He says it this way, My dad has troubled the land. This word for troubled is rather ominous. It's much more of a sense to to bring destruction. 
to bring ruin upon. Jonathan, in a sense, is saying, my dad has ruined us this day with this rash oath. He has hurt us. He has hurt Israel. He has turned this great victory, and he has made it a small one. Jonathan says that his dad has brought harm upon them. He has only made things worse, not better. In in fact, Jonathan explicitly expresses the folly of this oath. Look at 29 and 30. Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Listen, it doesn't take a rocket science to know that you don't fast during a battle. In short, Jonathan calls his dad a fool. He labels Saul's oath as both rash and unwise, harmful even, not helpful. And and once again, we see this father-son relationship and all of its drama. Instead of being a healthy one, this relationship between father and son It costs. It's kind of limping along. But with Jonathan's critique now, the consequences of Saul's oath begin to show. You see, that's one thing about oaths and why we're really slow to take them. They're, They're not just dangerous because you invoke God's holy name, but also because, well, you can't always see the consequences clearly. In the heat of the moment, an oath may seem good, but later it may cost a little too much. This is why Scripture so often warns us about the swearing of oaths. You see, it is better not to swear than to swear and not keep it. God holds you to your oath. A rash oath is like writing a check that you never intended to cash, it can really get you into trouble. Well, Jonathan has pointed out one negative effect of Saul's curse. That is, the victory will not be as great as it should have been. But this is kind of minor in comparison to the other negatives that we are about to see. For the next, um, the text tells us next just how far the Israelites chase the Philistines that day. It says from Michmash, this is where the battle began, all the way to Ajalon. The distance between these two points, and it seems to be in agreement with commentators, is roughly 23 miles. And they did it through rough terrain, and they did it in a day. Israel just ran a marathon on an empty stomach. No wonder it says that the people were so faint. They were falling over themselves in exhaustion and in hunger. Israel exercised to the point of nearly passing out. Well, when you are starving and you finally get a chance to eat, chances are you're going to go all out. Have you ever had a long moving day and you had a bunch of football players or just 
striping young men helping you, and you take them to a buffet, all the eyes of those guys that are at that buffet, they look because they know those men are going to destroy that buffet. Well, with sunset, Israel can now eat again. And these starving soldiers have all around them, as our text says, cows and sheep that they just took from the Philistines. And and there's nothing like a nice feast of meat after a hard day work. I mean, they're about to have a barbecue. And yet, what the people do here is particularly heinous. Look at verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Now, this is a unique phrase in our text, this eating with the blood. It's a quote from Leviticus 19.26. It reads, You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Now, this verse refers very clearly, as you can see, but I want to, I want to help you here. This re- verse refers to a pagan ritual that was outlawed by the law. Now, this rite was, was the devouring of your animal to the gods of the underworld. The pagans would slit the, the throat of an animal facing the ground, poured the blood into a trench, and then they would eat over the blood. Now, the men of Israel are so hungry and fog-headed that they eat essentially in honor of demons of the underworld. They followed a very similar practice. The fact is that it's night and they survived a battle, but there are some other likely factors here that did this. All of this is a consequence, and I want you to think about, this is a consequence of Saul's rash vow. His oath, excuse me. For think about this with me. In the name of Yahweh, Saul imposed a self-inflicting fast. So now, in the name of demons, the men break their fast. In starvation, Saul drove the men into acts of idolatry. Now clearly Saul did not intend for this, make no mistake, But this is what happens when you walk in reckless folly, and you can see what it brings. In fact, Saul is, make no mistake, Saul is appalled. He is horrified at what the men are doing. This idolatry was was the very last thing that he wanted. Saul is committed. He is truly committed to worshiping the Lord here, and so he denounces their actions as treacherous, and he he tries to quickly remedy the situation. Look at verse 34 with me. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. So he has the animals slaughtered on this big rock. And after the butchering is all done, Saul used this rock, and he does. He builds an altar to the Lord. You could look at verse 35. It says, And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar 
that he built to the Lord. Saul is really dismayed by this act of idolatry, and and his speedy fix is good. But we need to think deeply about this. You see, this reaction only reveals, listen to me, the poverty of his good judgment. You impose a fast on a day of battle, and you don't think that this is going to cause trouble? Saul may have intended well, but it was pretty thoughtless. Jonathan was right. His dad did do a foolish thing. And the consequences, the consequences of Saul's oath, listen to me, only gets worse. With the idolatry fixed, the soldiers fill their bellies with beef and with lamb. Saul, though, does not want to call it the day quite yet. He had an idea. I tell you what, we've gone this far. Let's press on all through the night. We can plunder those Philistines and we can wipe them out. <coughs> so after a full day of fighting and running, Saul lobbies to pull an all-nighter. Saul's really pushing his men very hard here. And as you recall, Saul is very slow We saw this a couple weeks, and reluctant to get going against the Philistines. But now that he's going, there's nothing that he wants to do to stop. Now remember, defeating the Philistines, this is important, is obedient to the Lord. The law commanded Israel to wipe out her enemies when they took possession of the land. And let's not forget that the Lord gave them this victory. So these are some positive things. So it would be a mistake if Saul didn't take advantage of this moment, right? We can acknowledge that it is good that Saul wants to put an end to the Philistines. And it may be even strategic to push through all night. But it does seem still a little harsh and maybe even a tad reckless. And yet, the army concurs with King Saul. The men say in verse 36, do whatever seems good to you. There they gave Saul a blank check, and they have given him full support. It will mean more plunder. It will mean more money for the soldiers after all. Now, it's at this point that the priest stands up and he goes, all right, hold on there. Let's not be so hasty. Before we go chasing after the Philistines, all night long we must inquire of the Lord. We must seek His will. The priest tries to slow things down and add some thoughtfulness to Saul's zeal. Saul pauses and makes an inquiry then of the Lord. Through the reem and thumine of the priest, Saul asks if they should press on. Now, somewhat ironically, the Lord, in this case, is silent. The Lord does not answer Saul's inquiry. This isn't good. You see, divine silence in the Old Covenant is a sign of God's disfavor. He has hidden His face with displeasure from the people. God giving you the silent treatment means that there's some sin disrupting the worship, disrupting 
the relationship. This relationship then must be fixed, must be reconciled before the Lord will answer Saul's inquiry. And Saul does at least get this. So he moves now to figure out this on his own. Now it's evident that Saul is getting a little exercised here. He is getting quite frustrated for he keeps using all these emphatic words. And what does he do next? Well, he makes another oath. Not another one. Yes, another one. Look at 39 and 40. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. So this oath here is basically Saul compelling the people to confess. That is, Snitch, turn that sinner in. And as the Lord lives, he says, whoever sinned, listen to me, will surely die. <coughs> Excuse me. So you all, you all need to come clean. You need to come clean. You need to turn this sinner in. Well, what do the people do in response? So far, the Lord has been silent. And the text tells us the people say nothing. First, God did not answer them, and now the people don't answer him. Now, it's not hard to see why, for this oath is not very wise. Brothers and sisters, listen to me for a minute. Saul places the death penalty on whoever sinned. Now, I want you to think about this with me, okay? He doesn't even know what the sin is yet, and yet he's already made a judgment of death. How can you set a punishment when you don't even know the crime? I'll ask another, another question. What if it was something small? Something that um, a sacrifice could alleviate it. And yet he has already made a judgment of death. Why is he rushing so quickly to the death penalty? Well, I'd submit to you that Saul's temper seems to be spiraling in frustration, and the people seem to know it. As we just read, Saul doesn't accept this silent. You don't speak? Fine. We're going to cast lots. Now, casting the lots here, Saul is going to find out the truth. At least that's his desire, no matter what. Now, What's a little bit odd, what's a little curious about the way he sets this up, it's very different than the typical way it's done. See, typically the 12 tribes would have all lined up, and the lots would think more like dice. They would have been selected one tribe, and it would have worked its way down until they found the individual. But Saul doesn't do that. Saul sets himself and Jonathan opposite of Israel. What is he doing? Does Saul assume the the people are guilty? Does Saul assume that Jonathan is guilty? Is he in a hurry to know and so he just breaks protocol? We don't know. Of course, when a guy is all hot under collar, you can't expect a lot of reason. Well, the lots are cast. 
and in two tosses, Jonathan is selected. Now, as a parent, this result should shake you to the core. Here, you call for the death penalty, now to find out that it is your very son that is guilty. Surely, your own foolishness would hit you like a cement truck. What have I done? Now, in this chapter, there are quite a few allusions to a previous story that we have covered back in the book of Judges. The story of Jephthah. As you may recall, Jephthah was the judge that vowed to the Lord to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his gate. And immediately following that victory, Jephthah came home only to be greeted by his daughter. Upon seeing her, do you remember what Jephthah did? He tore his clothes and he cried out in sorrow. Jephthah bawled, knowing his rash vow cost him his daughter. Well, you would expect a similar reaction with Saul here. But brothers and sisters, we don't find a similar reaction. Instead, he says this, what have you done? Saul says, what did you do? Saul places all the blame on his boy, Jonathan. Now, look at Jonathan, how he responds in the middle of verse 43. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Listen to this. Here I am. I will die. Jonathan makes no excuses. Jonathan makes no protest. He doesn't shift the blame and say, Dad, it's your fault. All Jonathan does is confess. Yes, I ate some honey. I broke your fasting oath. And then he presents himself for punishment. Here I am. I will die. Jonathan surrenders himself to death. He accepts the curse of the first rash oath. He consents to being executed under the second angry oath. Who does this? Well, Jonathan will obey the Lord even unto death. And as for Saul, he goes over the top here. Yes, Jonathan, he says, you will surely die. May God ensure it. May you be put to death. Where's the remorse? The sorrow. The mercy. It's nowhere to be found. So appears to be so eager to send his own son to the gallows. All for his own rash oaths. Well, finally... Finally, some sense and reason enters into our narrative this afternoon. You see the people of Israel now intervene. Saul calls for the executioner, and the army says, says, Okay, this has gone too far. Look at their response in verse 45. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. 
for he has worked with God this day. And this is the key. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. They recognized that it was Jonathan that worked the salvation of the Lord for this great victory. The Lord used Jonathan this day, and he's not going to kill him. Now, they do something very important here. They redeemed him. They ransomed him. Brothers and sisters, you see, under the law, if a life was forfeit to God due to some curse, you could pay money to the tabernacle and you could save that life. And this is exactly what they do. They pay the ransom price. Money and probably an animal, too, to save Jonathan's life. <clears throat> you see, that's the one thing about oaths. Once they are made, they must be satisfied. God's holiness means that oaths cannot just be set aside or forgotten about. And so this redemption money satisfies holiness. It fulfills the oath. It saves Jonathan's life all in one. Finally, disaster has been averted. The people pay the price out of their own pockets to save Jonathan. Now, why didn't Saul think of this? He's the king. He has to write a copy of the law approved by the priest. Why did dad call for the death penalty and it was the people that had to redeem Jonathan's life? Well, whatever Saul's motives are, we are not too impressed. Saul has shown himself to be impetuous and lacking in good judgment. He is careless with his words. His zeal to keep the letter of the law runs roughshod over the spirit of justice and mercy. Saul does attempt to do good, make no mistake, but his folly keeps getting in the way. And brothers and sisters, once you go down the wrong path, there is no turning back. Now, what is remarkable about this chapter is after making us essentially disgusted with Saul, our text closes with some really positive things to say about him. It summarizes all the good victories of Saul, the text compliments Saul as being triumphant, as saving Israel from all that plundered her. This is good. It shows that Saul is a very capable commander-in-chief. He brought peace as well as some prosperity to Israel. When it, when it came to building an army and winning battles, Saul did okay. If we were going to give him a grade, let's give him a C plus, okay? But I want to ask you another question. Give me a few more minutes here. How old is this positive characteristic of Saul? When they give this positive characterization, how does this mesh with his spiritual rashness? Well, it reveals Saul to be, listen to me, just like the other kings the kings of the nations. When it comes to war and thinking about himself, he's really good. He gets an A for that one. 
But when it comes to wise obedience to the law of God, he lacks immensely. In many ways, Saul is like one of those pro-athletes. He's awesome on the field, but his domestic life is a wreck. So I want to ask you one final question. Would you want Saul to be your king? You see, Saul... Saul's failure as king should press upon something in us very deeply, and it's this. We need both a victorious king, but brothers and sisters, we also need an obedient and wise king. Saul was trying to obey, but his imprudence and his hastiness, they got in the way. Saul would take a bad situation And he would just make it worse. He wouldn't stop, and he wouldn't think, and he wouldn't run to the Lord. He added one foolish oath after another, and this is just like the rulers of the pagan nations. Saul may have lived thousands of years ago, but his mistakes seem all too current for us today. You see... Brothers and sisters, as the church, we need a better king. We need a king that doesn't just try to obey, but a king that actually succeeds. Obedience can only succeed with wisdom, especially when it comes to being king. Brothers and sisters, good intentions are just not good enough. Saul's intentions, they... They were not all bad. There was some good there. But this is exactly why we need Christ. Yes, the Father provided us a righteous king. He provided us a wise king. And this is so important as we live the day to day by faith. For for if Saul was our king, how much would you trust him after this battle? Well, not much at all. Even giving him the benefit of the doubt, all you could say is that, well, maybe he meant well, but he's still very incompetent. Can't trust him to do what is best for Israel. Well, think about the events of our life. Sometimes things in our lives happen that makes us doubt. I want you to think about this as we close. Death, accidents, disease, crime, suffering, poverty. Now let me ask, how are all these things a part of Christ's wise plan? How how do these things work for our good? Yes, If we're honest, we are tempted to doubt the wisdom of God. If we aren't careful, we could wonder and we could stumble. Is Christ really doing the best for us? And I'd like to submit to you, yes, brothers and sisters, Christ's wisdom is perfect. It is perfect. And He works all things for your good. Our Heavenly Father knows how to give us good gifts. 
And He disciplines and corrects us out of love, listen to me, for your sanctification, for godliness. And Christ is on the throne working all things for your spiritual well-being. That means that all the trials of this life under the sun, they don't show the lack of Christ's wisdom. Rather, they demonstrate the surpassing wisdom to use them for your sanctification and your preservation. Jesus uses the chaotic hardships of life, listen to me, not to tear you down, but to build you up. To renew you more and more into His image. Christ's kingship is the solid rock of your foundation, or the foundation of your faith. And it is His wisdom. It is His wisdom that is your immovable shelter in the midst of storms that happen on the day-to-day basis. His kingship over you should be the most comforting thing because it flows, listen to me, from His infinite love for you. It is sealed in the time that Jesus says, here I am, I will die. And he did it for you. Like Jonathan, Jesus was sentenced to death. Like a silent lamb, he willingly took on that sentence of death and he did it for us. He suffered and he died because he loved you. God's wisdom in redemption is the surety of His love for you. Let me say it this way. The perfect and powerful wisdom of our triune God declares to you that nothing, nothing can separate you from His love. So may we take refuge this afternoon in the life and the wisdom of our righteous King Let us rejoice in the fact that our King works all things for the good of those who love Him to bring us to Himself. And brothers and sisters, to present the church to Himself as a beautiful, spotless bride on the day of our resurrection.